Sing to the Lord a new song. Let us praise the Lord and glorify his name. Praise, oh, praise the, the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord and glorify his name. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Welcome to the Passion for Christ show. So glad to have you, friend. Hey, I just want to let you know I'm part of the greatest movement ever, a follower of Jesus Christ, because you see, in Him alone I find peace, joy, happiness. I'm blessed beyond measure, more than I could ever deserve, friend. I'm your host, Bruce Kessler, and it's my goal here to encourage you along the way to help you find your passion in life in Jesus Christ. Upcoming in our study segment, we're going to be talking about the power of Satan to lure. The power of Satan to lure. But before we get there, a few things along the way. And the first is headline news. Get this, friend. Get this. Virginia's new attorney general is supporting a high school teacher who was fired after he declined to use the personal pronouns preferred by a biologically female student who identifies as male. Attorney General Jason Mayares, a Republican who was sworn in this year, filed a friend-of-the-court brief with the Virginia Supreme Court this week, arguing that the high school's action violated the Virginia Constitution and a state law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The West Point, the West Point School Board fired high school French teacher Peter Villeming for declining to use male pronouns in reference to the student who is biologically female. Villeming had agreed to compromise by using the student's preferred name instead of the student's given name. The Lamming says his religious beliefs prevent him from speaking messages that he does not believe to be true. ADF Senior Counsel Chris Shandevil 
argues that Beleming wasn't fired for something he said. Rather, he was fired for something he couldn't say. How do you like that, friend? How do you like that? Virginia A.G. Back's religious teacher who was fired over pronoun policies. My oh my, folks. What in the world are we taking people to court, firing people for pronoun usage? My oh my, friend. My oh my. You just will not believe this next news story. A passenger with zero flying experience recently pulled off a miracle landing of a single-engine plane after the pilot had passed out. You got it, folks. Darren Harrison, 39, was on a flight home from a fishing trip in the Bahamas on May 10th when the pilot, 64-year-old Kenneth Allen, lost consciousness. Allen had suffered a tear in his aorta during the flight. He said, I've got a headache and I'm fuzzing. I just don't feel right. I said, well, what do we need to do? (laughs) That would have been my question too. At that point, he didn't respond at all. Allen's silence prompted Harrison to climb into the cockpit. That's when he saw that the plane was plummeting toward the water below them. All I saw when I came up to the front was water out of the right window, and I knew it was coming quick. At that point, I knew if I didn't react, we would die. Harrison noted that he grabbed a hold of the controls in order to straighten out the aircraft. I knew if I went up and yanked that, the airplane would stall. I also knew that at the rate we were going, we were going way too fast, and it would probably rip the wings off the airplane. He added that the moment was the scariest part of the whole story. He reached out to air traffic controller Robert Morgan in Florida, who would eventually guide him in safety, landing the plane at Palm Beach International Airport, Meanwhile, Allen's friend, also a passenger on the plane, helped Harrison remove the unconscious pilot from his seat. When I was flying and saw the state of Florida at that second, I knew I'm going to land. I don't know what the outcome was going to be. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I knew I'm going to have to land this airplane because there's no other option. He needed to get home to his wife, Brittany. She was seven months pregnant with their first child. Once the plane was 200 feet from the runway, Morgan told Harrison that he needed to slow down the descending airplane. At that point, I told the other guy, hey, take the throttle and dump it on the floor. Just dump it on the floor as far as it will go. He managed to land the plane safely and offered up the biggest prayer I ever said in my whole life, he, Harrison, asserted that the hand of God was with him. Amen, folks. Can you believe that? Passenger with no flying experience miraculously lands plane after pilot loses consciousness. Woo! Can you believe that, friend? Mm-mm-mm. How powerful God is in moments like these. Amen, folks. And that's 
our headline news for this broadcast. And now, this day in church history. Lydia Childs was an author, editor, abolitionist, and advocate for the rights of women and Native Americans. She wrote novels and stories that address, from a more or less Christian perspective, hot topics such as marriage between races, treatment of women in a male-dominated society, and the cruel nature of slavery. In 1841, she was living in New York with the family of the Quaker anti-slavery crusader Isaac T. Hopper to edit the Anti-Slavery Standard. From there, she wrote to her friend, Miss E.C. Pierce, on this day in 1841. She wrote, What do I care whether you live in one room or six? I want to know what your spirit is doing. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you reading? My task here is irksome enough. Your father will tell you that it was not zeal for the cause, but love for my husband which brought me hither. But since it was necessary for me to leave home to be earning somewhat, I am thankful that my work is for the anti-slavery cause. I have agreed to stay one year. I hope I shall then be able to return to my husband and rural home, which is humble enough yet very satisfactory to me. Should the standard be continued and my editing generally desired, perhaps I could make an arrangement to send articles from Northampton. At all events, I trust the weary separation from my husband is not to last more than a year. If I am to be away from him, I could not be more happily situated than in friend Hopper's family. They treat me the same as a daughter and a sister. My, oh, my, folks. And that's this day in church history. And now, folks, we have a little bit of fun with Name That Bible Character. Here is your clue. A man called Eliezer of Damascus was my steward and stood to inherit all that I owned if he had not had a son. Who am I? Here's your clue one more time. A man called Eliezer of Damascus was my steward, and stood to inherit all that I owned if he had not had a son. Who am I? We'll reveal the answer to this tantalizing clue following our study segment. So stay tuned for that exciting reveal in our final segment of Name That Bible Character. Welcome, friend, to our study segment. Get your hot cup of coffee, hot cup of tea, get your Bibles. And let's open up God's fantastic and powerful word. We're going to be continuing our study on knowing your enemy. That enemy is Satan. We're going to be talking about one of his powers, his great power, which is to lure. James tells us that we are to and can be drawn away and enticed. So we want to talk about how does he do that? How does he entice us? Well, it's like a fisherman 
that uses a lure for the fish to go after. And Satan, friend, knows exactly what kind of temptation that will lure you in. So let's go to James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. You see, friend, it will happen. You will be tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So how does temptation come about? Verse 14 tells us. For each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So we're drawn away by two things. By our own desires. We are creatures of desires. God crafted and made us this way. We're passionate people driven by desire. And guess who knows that? His name is Satan. Friend, here is the truth. It's very simple. That is, if you're not knocked down in love with Jesus Christ, your desire, your passion can and will be easily targeted because if not God, then who? Romans chapter 1 tells us that we will love and serve the creature rather than the creator. Basically, your actions are saying, I love something more than God. This goes all the way back to Romans chapter 6, verse 16. When he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Basically, you become a slave to sin. You become an easy target to have a life-dominating sin if you're not careful. Satan knows what lures to throw and reel you in. But let me make this statement very clear. That is, Satan is finite. He is not infinite. He can't read your mind. Now, he can predict an outcome based upon your actions or his lures and what you may or may not do, but he can't read your mind. We need to keep that in mind as we deal with this subject, knowing your enemy. Let's continue reading. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. There is the lure. Satan is throwing a lure to tempt you, to draw you away, to reel you in, to catch you, to trip you. Verse 15, it says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There is nothing good that happens based upon the fact that we give in to and are enticed 
and are pulled in, reeled in by the luring temptation of Satan. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We can live a good life. With God, all things are possible. And he can help us through even this area of Satan's greatest power, which is to lure. So I wanted to stop right here and, and ask a series of questions. And let's just get real about this subject. What are some of Satan's lures? And we can talk to 90,000 foot and not do a, a thing, not do anybody any good. Satan has his ability to lure us. Now, fishermen have live bait. Sometimes that don't work. They go to shiny bait. And if that don't work, they go to colorful bait. If that don't work, they go to something else. They go to spinners. And if that doesn't work, they go to things that make a sound. That is exactly the way Satan is working on you, friend, and me. This is real life, real situations, a real effort by an enemy who seeks to do the worst he can do and drive you in becoming an ineffective servant of God. So let's talk about what are some of Satan's lures. Perhaps you, friend, are riding that very thin line between the flesh and the spirit. You're riding that fence. And so Satan knows that you're fighting the battle of sex or the battle of lust, unhealthy lust. And so one of several different areas of his lure, ability to cast a lure out to you, is it could be anything about a woman's look, about her hair, about her body shape, about what she's wearing. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be revealing. But Satan will work his lure. That's the power of Satan to reel you in by a glance, by a look. Or it could be something else, like a commercial or a TV show, or a movie, or driving down the interstate looking at the billboard. It could be anything to get you trapped into some kind of sexual deviance or unhealthy, lustful desires. And he'll rear you in, and before you know it, you become broken. And people that you love become broken-hearted as well. Does that describe you, friend? Broken? Reeled in? By the lure of Satan to satisfy your selfish and lustful desires in any way possible. So that's number one lure. What's number two? Now these are some of the things that I came up with, friend. You could add to that list. Well, perhaps you have a tendency to be weak in the area of finances. Weak in the area of well, you like to gamble a little bit here and there. You like and want and have this desire to win big. 
This one win can just solve my problems. Win the lottery. Few dollars here, few dollars there, five dollars here, five dollars there, ten dollars here, ten dollars there. But Satan will work and exploit that weakness. And it will cause you, friend, with that lure of rationalization to make excuses to appease your conscience. He'll decorate all of this with all kinds of pretty stuff, good food, good drinking, fun games, all the while oppressing you with the weight of disappointment, with the weight of knowing you stole when you really didn't have the means and now you're in financial ruin. Oppressed, exploited by the lure and temptation of Satan himself. So that's number two. Number three, what about biblical truth? What about the Bible being true? What about things that you know are factual and doctrinal? Take, for instance, Satan's ability to confuse the issues of the time. To get you to disregard truth just a little bit here and there. To disregard the teachings of Christ for something else or something less. Let's just take baptism, for instance. The religious world would ask us to temper our teaching on that. Because there is another angle to salvation. And that is, all you have to do is confess and say the sinner's prayer. That's all you have to do. A little bit here, a little lure there. Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. But did Christ really mean that? Aren't there other ways to get close to God? That is the lure of Satan. What about marriage? What about male? What about female? What are Where do I fit in? And the end result of all of this is you become disappointed and you become hopeless. Number four, what about pride? Satan lures us in with pride, being selfish. That leads us to become bitter and hateful and become to devalue other people because after all we think we are more important than anybody else we devalue and demean and look down on others and that creates tension that creates racial tensions that create as James would put it the tension between the poor and the rich and how we treat one or the other. And for all of this, Satan is easily diverting our attention, blinding us from what we've become. And then number five, friend, the self-made prison of our own minds. Sometimes Satan uses the lure of disease and suffering and trauma and loss 
and grief and your pain and your hurt and your emotional roller coaster ride of life, you become demoralized yourself, hapless, helpless, hopeless, and blame other people and blame God. This is where Satan wants you to be. Self-made prison. You don't even realize what you become. So those are the five that I have of ways in which Satan can lure us in. And all of these things are all hearts that are not wholly and completely fallen, knocked down in love for Jesus Christ. Who has your heart, friend? What do you do when you're in love, friend? Do you remember? You give up things for the one that you love. You protect them. You are selfless rather than selfish. You are true and do good for them and honor them with your life. And that is the way we should be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because if not Christ, it will be someone or something else. You will either serve the creature more than the Creator or serve God. You see, friend, of all of these lures, all of these temptations, the way out, the only way we can overcome and become conquerors is through faith in and love for Jesus Christ, the only one who can heal the brokenhearted, the only one who can set us free from our own self-made prisons, who can lift us up from the blindness we've allowed ourselves to enter in and to set us free from the oppression and weight of sin. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 24. He, speaking of Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Like sheep you wandered away from God, but now you have returned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls, who keeps you safe from all attacks. And that is our study for this broadcast. And now, folks, we have the conclusion to Name That Bible Character. Here was your clue. A man called Eliezer of Damascus was my steward and stood to inherit all that I owned if he had not had a son. Who am I? Well, it was Abram. Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. A man called Eliezer of Damascus was my steward and stood to inherit all that I owned if he had not had a son. Who am I? Abram. And named that Bible Character.
Well, folks, you too can become a part of the greatest movement ever, a follower of Jesus Christ. You can find peace, joy, forgiveness, happiness, be blessed beyond measure, be saved, and live in the greatest peace of all time. My goal here has been very simple, and that is to encourage you along the way to help you find your passion in life in Jesus Christ. Visit our website, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com. Well, friend, I want to tell you what a privilege and an honor it's been for me to have you walking along my side during this show. May God bless you. This I know, this I know, there's a time to reap and a time to sow. Good deeds planted every day will grow and grow. Oh, Baba told me so. Oh, Baba told me so. Yes, I know. There's a time to plant and a time to cry. A time to live and a time to die. I know. Baba told me so. Baba told me so. Oh, the good Lord watches over everyone. Morning, noon, and night. He made the moon and he sent his son so our future would be bright. There's a time to reap and a time to sow, a time to pray when the evening lights are low. Baba told me so, Baba told me so. This I know, this I know. There's a time to work and a time to play, to scatter flowers on the way wherever you go. Baba told me so. There's a time to win and a time to lose A time when everybody gets the blues I know Baba told me so Baba told me so Oh, the good Lord watches over everyone Morning, noon, and night He made the moon and he sent his son So our future would be bright There's a time to reap and a time to sow A time to pray when the evening lights are low Baba told me so. Baba told me so. This I know. There's a time to reap and a time to sow. A time to pray when the evening lights are low. Baba told me so. Baba told me so.